Hello and welcome to this latest episode of California Dreaming. Before we get started, I have a few notes about the show. This is an independent one-woman production, which means I depend on listeners to help give the show more visibility and to keep us moving forward. And there are a number of ways that you can help. You can leave a nice rating and a review on whichever platform you listen to your shows on. You can recommend our podcast in true crime discussion groups and online forums. You can follow the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you're looking for more content to listen to and have a dollar or two to spare each month, you can subscribe to Patreon. And if a subscription isn't your thing and you would still like to contribute, you may do so through PayPal using my email, californiapod at gmail.com. I will thank new patrons at the beginning of the year, but right now I'd like to take the time to thank you all for wishing me a happy birthday. Last week, I didn't really post too much about it online just because I had other things going on, but life is starting to get back to somewhat normal, if that's even a thing. So I'm all good. I'm still here, hanging in there. And um, before I forget, this is the third part of a series. I think it's going to be four parts. And before I get started into this episode, I have to provide you with a warning. This case contains details involving some extreme violence, sexual assault, child sexual abuse, and torture. Listener discretion is advised. Um. You know, I did write one more paragraph that I wanted to share with you guys. Um, I thought about taking it out, but uh, what the heck, I might as well just share. I want to apologize to everyone for not being able to keep up the pace when it comes to content and episodes for the show. And I know this has been going on with me since mid-July. I just had a really dramatic shift in my relationship with my estranged husband. I needed to take care of some financial matters related to my family, and I really don't want to get into all of that on here, but I needed to have separation papers signed before I did what I had been postponing for a long time when it comes to like estate planning and things of that nature, but my um, ex-husband, soon-to-be ex-husband, was being very evasive about it. And to be honest, I kind of sort of tricked him into meeting me at my apartment where I wanted to have a mobile notary waiting for him to sign the paperwork. And the notary ended up canceling on me, so I had to pull another fast one. And I tricked my husband into going over to the UPS store to do it there with their notary. He wasn't happy about it, but I finally got the paper signed and I was able to move forward with some things that I've been trying to do for quite some time now. Um, The way that my husband was acting caused me so much anxiety and stress in July, August, and most of September that I basically kind of shut down and isolated again like I tend to do, but this time, you know, I wasn't, it wasn't as bad as it was when I first moved here. At the beginning of September, I started to reach out to people that I had been, I don't want to say I was ignoring them, but I just wasn't responsive. 
And I was also trying to reach out to new and different people to try and fill some voids and emptiness that I've been feeling for most of the summer. And that caused me to be a little bit busier than I'm used to being. And I at times feel like I took on more than I can handle. Um, in the meantime, my daughter and I were dealing with someone in hospice, and I don't want to talk about it, but she ended up passing away at the end of the October. And that was the reason why going to California was pretty much a, on a weekly basis for me. I was making that trip almost weekly throughout August and September and October, and it severely cut into my ability to focus on reading and writing and researching. That's what the problem was. I was pressed for time because of all the travel, and when I did settle down, I couldn't focus. And so the funeral has passed. It happened on December 1st, and it was stressful, but um, I told you a little bit about it in the group. Um, so for those of you who are wondering where I've been, that sums up pretty much what's been going on. I again apologize. I am here. I will always be here. I'm grateful to everyone who has been so patient and understanding. And for those of you who reached out to me directly, I may not have responded to you, but I've got all of your messages. Um, I can tell that you're sticking by me because very few of you have dropped your Patreon support. So it's still going strong and steady. So just know that I see it and I see you and I am eternally grateful. All right, let's get this started. Just a quick reminder that this is the third part of a multi-part series on this Cheshire murders. If you haven't listened to the first two parts, you'll need to pause this, go back and start with those two episodes so you're caught up. We left off in an interview that Stephen Hayes gave where he told his side of the story. This was just a couple years ago. I want to say maybe 2019-ish, 2018. I'm not completely sure. Um, so, you know, he's had some time to think about what he was going to say and how he was going to word his story. And just like Joshua's confession that we went over previously, his interview was very self-serving. He does a lot of distancing and placing blame on his co-conspirator. So I'll pick it up from there. And I already know that we're not going to finish it out in this um, three parts. It's going to go to four. So getting back to that interview with Steve Hayes, we left off with him telling us how Joshua was the one who came up with the idea to set the house on fire, the Pettit house. In his confession, Joshua said that it was Hayes' idea to burn the house down. But you know, for the most part, it doesn't matter whose idea it was. They both participated. They're both pieces of shit. So we'll just take what both of them said with the grain of salt. However, I do think I already mentioned that I lean towards believing Joshua more than Stephen Hayes because Hayes is the one who had the broken latex glove on and he was the one going through the house, searching through stuff, looking for valuables. Joshua's motivation to be there had to do more with Michaela and getting the money. I honestly don't know which one was more of a priority. We do know that Joshua picked the Pettit house because he was familiar with the family, so why not go there? He had been fixated on their daughters. I suppose his logic was 
they might as well burglarize a place where he knew he'd be able to perpetrate a sexual assault as well. So we're just going to call it like we see it. The two of them together decided that they would burn down the house. Hayes said that in the morning, he would be the one to go get the gas at the gas station first. And then when the bank opened, he would take Jennifer Pettit over there to make the cash withdrawal. Now, Hayes said the plan was for him to take Jennifer with him. And in the meantime, Joshua would get Dr. Pettit, Michaela and Haley into another vehicle and drive away with them. And to that, I ask, and what were you going to exactly do next? There is nothing about that scenario, I believe, that Joshua was going to put Dr. Pettit and his daughters in a car and drive away from the burning house. Because, you know, there's one thing that I've said about criminals like this in the past, and it's that they're lazy. And yeah, it may have been drinking and drugs that caused them to be lazy. And perhaps lazy isn't always the term we use when talking about people who struggle with addiction. Not necessarily the reason why, but that isn't what I'm getting at here because that's not what's going on. These guys are career criminals because they just want money and they want it fast and they want it easy and they don't want to get up each day and do an honest day's work. So Hayes said in the morning he got into the car and he started to head to get the gas. But he said as he sat in the car, he claimed to have had a change of heart and that he called Joshua and told him, you know what, dude, like I can't go through with this. This is not what we're going to do. I didn't agree to any of this, blah, blah, blah. Trying to make himself look like he was the one who really, really did not want to do any of this. But you know what? At the end of the day, when that house was burning to the ground, they were both still there. They both still fled the house together at the same time. Nobody ever left early. Nobody ever abandoned the burglary, the arson, or the murder plan. They were there, the both of them, from start to finish, plain and simple. So I don't really care what either of these guys had to say about the other. There is no amount of blaming or finger pointing that is going to make me feel like one of these guys is less culpable than the other. So Hayes said that he suggested that Joshua get into the car and forget the whole thing, just leave the house. Hayes told him that he was just going to leave and that he didn't want to come back. I suppose the big concern for the time being was whether or not Dr. Pettit was going to live or die. According to Hayes, Joshua told him that he took a look at Dr. Pettit and said that he was going to survive his wounds that had been inflicted, that he's going to be okay. Joshua at some point either had some training or was an EMT for a time. He said that he checked on him and that he's going to be fine. Hayes explained that Joshua told him, look, man, the evidence is all over the place. Your fingerprints, your DNA, you are all over this house. It's already here. There's nothing that you can do about it. And then he told him that he just couldn't leave all this evidence behind. So this is Hayes claiming that Joshua is talking him in to having to burn down the house because of all the evidence that he's left behind and they can't possibly figure out everything that he's touched in these, you know, four or five hours since they first broke into this house. So after they had that discussion, Hayes said that the things Joshua was telling him about not leaving all this evidence behind just started to make sense to him. So here Hayes is claiming 
that he had to be talked into the murders and the arson by Joshua. That this wasn't part of the plan. Nope. He wasn't a murderer and he wasn't going to burn down this house. It was all Joshua's idea. Because Joshua was so concerned about Hayes' DNA being all over the place, right? Because he cares. Because he's a good friend like that, right? Yeah. Sure. And we know exactly where Joshua Karmasajewski's DNA ended up also. So, yeah. Whatever. We know you're a piece of shit. Anyway, when Hayes got back from the gas station, he claimed that he came up with another idea that didn't involve burning the house down. He suggested that if they just pour gasoline all over the place, they'll have to send in a hazardous materials team to come in. And Hayes explained it as spraying or whatever they do to spray to neutralize the accelerant and to clear it all out to make it safe to enter the house. And once the hazmat team does their work, that will destroy all the evidence so they don't even have to ignite the gas. So according to Hayes, that was the new plan, which is just stupid and ridiculous and nobody believes it. When he would leave with Jennifer Pettit in the morning to take her to the bank, Joshua was supposed to round up Dr. Pettit, Michaela, and Haley. He was supposed to get them in the car and leave the house. And while he was doing this, they're supposed to stay on the phone with one, one another so that they can keep coordinated. But Hayes said that Joshua didn't do that. He didn't follow through on what his part of the plan was supposed to be. Joshua, for some reason, did not want to stay on the line and he kept hanging up on Hayes. He said that he kept trying to call Joshua to have him on the line when he headed into the bank, but Joshua wasn't picking up. I believe it was during this time when Hayes had taken the mom to the bank that that's when he sexually assaulted Michaela, which would explain why he didn't want to be on the phone with his partner in crime. So if you remember, I also mentioned previously that these two, Joshua and Hayes had discussed taking Jennifer to a Bank of America branch that wasn't in their town of Cheshire, but instead driving over to a branch that was further away in Waterbury. But according to Hayes, he decided to go to the one in Cheshire because he had a really uneasy feeling, so he says, about doing any of this. So I guess what he's saying here is that he decided to not take the time to drive to the branch that was further away that he wanted to get back to the house as soon as possible, so he decided to go to the local nearby Bank of America branch instead. And this is where he said everything went downhill from there. Hayes said that when Jennifer went into the bank, she did what she could to get the money out of her bank account, but apparently they were trying to take out more than she actually had available. Inside the Pettit home, either Joshua or Hayes found a bank book or a checkbook register, and they saw that the balance column had several tens of thousands of dollars in it. But Hayes had said something about not taking a look at the most recent banking statements that the Pettits didn't actually have that amount of funds available that they wanted. When they went to the bank, the only thing Hayes gave Jennifer to bring into the bank was her driver's license and her checkbook. And I guess he figured that she could just go in and write herself a check made out to cash in the amount that they were demanding. Hayes was asked who discovered the banking booklet inside the Pettit house. And many of us remember that before everything was online, if you had a savings account, you would have like those bank books where you could track your balance. 
I'm assuming that's what they found, either that or the Pettit's checkbook register, which is where they could also keep a record of that running balance as well. So Hayes was asked who found the bank book because that's what led them to believe that the Pettits had access to a large sum of money. And while Hayes said it was Joshua who found the bank book, but I'm not so sure I believe that because by his own admission, Hayes was the one who was searching the whole house all night long. He was the one going from room to room, bagging up valuables and things that he wanted to take with him. He said in his interview on this podcast that I listened to that Joshua wanted to spend most of his time in Michaela's room. So according to Hayes, since Joshua was the one who discovered the bank book, which like I said, I don't necessarily believe, he was the one who told Hayes that there was a lot of money in the bank account. The only thing that they took with him to allow Jennifer to go into the bank to make the withdrawal was her own ID and her checkbook. He stated that she only had $11,000 in her account. And I believe they thought she had upwards of like $40,000 or so. And if I'm not mistaken, there had been some talk between Joshua and Hayes about only asking for $15,000. So when he found there was only $11,000, he realized that they weren't going to be able to access the amounts of money that they were hoping to get their hands on. Now, Hayes at this point mentioned something that I had not heard before. Maybe some of you have. Maybe some of you might be able to confirm whether or not this is true. I did a cursory Google search, but I couldn't find anything about this. But Hayes said that Jennifer only had $11,000 in her account because she apparently disclosed to Hayes on the drive back to her house that she and Dr. Pettit were going through a divorce. So anyway, because she didn't have like a second form of ID with her, such as her debit card, the representative she was dealing with at the bank suspected something fraudulent was going on when she tried to make such a large withdrawal. Then he said nobody at the bank knew Jennifer and Dr. Pettit were going through a divorce, but eventually the bank relented and allowed Jennifer to access funds, but I believe she did so by way of taking out a line of credit in the amount of $15,000. I believe that's what the bank eventually settled on. Because the bank teller and the bank manager have been giving Jennifer a hard time about not having the appropriate forms of identification to make such a large transaction, she finally had to disclose to the bank employees that her children and her husband were being held hostage at her home, and if she doesn't get this money, then she was afraid they were going to harm or kill her family. So they ended up giving her the money via a new line of credit. I guess that was the only way for her to be able to take out that amount of money right then and there. Now, Stephen Hayes claimed that the bankers, the people helping Jennifer Pettit, he claimed that they did not believe Jennifer's story about her family being held hostage. I don't know if that's completely accurate because the bank manager did call 911 and on her phone call, she sounds legitimately concerned and even pointed out that Jennifer looked terrified that it was written all over her face. But Hayes said the bank employees did not believe Jennifer's story about her family being held hostage. So when the police were called and they arrived at the scene, they didn't come with lights and sirens on. They quietly surrounded the Pettit house. And according to Hayes, he stated he was in no hurry to get back to the house, which kind of contradicts what he just said a moment ago about deciding to not go to the bank that was further away and instead coming to the bank that was closer by to avoid the chances of the bank branch employees in the Pettis neighborhood that they might recognize and be familiar with Jennifer 
But now he's telling us that he was taking his sweet time going back to the house after they left the bank. So whatever the case was, before Hayes and Jennifer got back with the money, police were already set up in strategic hiding places around the outside of the house. We know that they were hiding in yards and in bushes, but apparently when Stephen Hayes and Jennifer Pettit arrived back from the bank, Hayes said that the police were actually present and witnessed Jennifer exit the vehicle and walk up to the front door, followed by Hayes, who was trailing behind her a few steps. He said that the police did not witness him holding Jennifer at gunpoint, as if that makes any difference, but he said what the police witnessed was the two of them getting out of the car together as if they were acquainted with one another, and the police looked on as they made their way to the front door, and when they got to the porch, Jennifer and Hayes found out that the door was locked. He said that he didn't know what he was going to do to be able to get back into the house because the door was supposed to be unlocked for him. But Hayes did point out that he did have the Pettit's keys and their keys had the house key on it, but he didn't realize that it was on the ring with the car keys. So they knocked on the door and after a few minutes, Joshua came downstairs and opened the door for them. So witnessing all of this, it didn't appear on the surface to be as urgent of a situation as it actually was. Allegedly. I don't know. The bank teller on the 911 call made it pretty clear, to me anyway, that she looked terrified. Once they got back inside, Hay said that he tied Jennifer up again. He worded it in his interview that he quote-unquote secured her. But the fact is, they did secure her, but Hayes wasn't finished with her just yet. And I will come back to that. I want to finish up this interview. So after quote unquote securing Mrs. Pettit, Hayes said that Joshua came into the living room to tell him that they had a problem, that Dr. Pettit was dead, but also Michaela and Haley were also dead. Stephen Hayes said that Joshua claimed that he had to kill them too because he left his DNA. You notice that Hayes strongly hinted around the fact that Joshua was interested in one or both of the Pettit girls, but he has yet to outright say that Joshua sexually abused Michaela. But he has said a couple of times that Joshua spent most of his time in the younger daughter's bedroom, and now he's saying that Joshua's telling him that he left his DNA behind as well, and that's why he had to kill the daughters. And so then Hayes said after that, after Joshua informed him that all three of the other family members were dead, Joshua told him that he needed to kill Jennifer Pettit. Hayes said that Joshua had a box cutter in his hand, suggesting that Joshua was providing him with a weapon to kill Jennifer because all he had with him was a fake gun. So then Hayes described this moral dilemma that he had now found himself in and he said that he was very nervous and he was anxious and he was pacing around and he kept trying to think of what he should do. So I'm going to give you a recap of what Stephen Hayes admitted to in this interview, but I will immediately follow up with what actually happened. So Hayes said that he was trying to figure out what to do. He said that he suddenly noticed a police car outside or what he thought was a police car. 
He said that when he saw that car, it dawned on him that Jennifer did inform on them when she was in the bank. And because of that, the police were there at the house. So at that point, Hayes claimed that he became so enraged when he realized what Jennifer had done, it caused him to lose his temper. He claimed that he was under the impression that all the other three were dead and that during that time, he was pacing and trying to think of what to do next and that he was really trying to think of a scenario to get themselves out of this mess that they've made while at the same time keeping Jennifer alive. And essentially, he's trying to give us the impression that he wanted to end this with everyone alive, but because he claimed Joshua killed everybody else, there was just no getting around it that they were going to have to kill Jennifer too. And finding out that she had contacted the police or had the police contacted while she was inside the bank was all the triggering that Stephen Hayes needed to go ahead and kill her with his bare hands. Hayes admitted in the interview that there was sex. Those were his words. Quote, there was sex, but it wasn't good. It wasn't pleasurable. It happened because of rage. The way that he described it, it sounded like he was having sex with her while manually strangling her since he was so angry that she had the bank call the police. But then Hayes made the claim that he suddenly stopped. He stopped having sex with her. He stopped strangling her. And at that point, he said Jennifer was still alive. And the reason why he stopped, he said, was because he wanted to go out to the garage to see if he could see any cop cars outside. However, when he did that and returned to the place where he had left Jennifer, he found her on the floor with the ligature around her neck. And he said that Joshua was the one who finished the task. He called her murder the task. You know this guy is explaining things away with a version of the story that is able to explain what the evidence was able to actually show what happened. And the only thing that he really copped to was raping Jennifer Pettit. And you may have noticed the way he worded it. He didn't say that he raped her, sexually assaulted her. He didn't even say that he had sex with her. He said there was sex, but it wasn't enjoyable and it wasn't good because he did it from this place of anger and rage directed towards her because it dawned on him that she was the one who had alerted the police while they were at the bank. He said that he had started to manually strangle her, but then stopped to go out to see if there was a cop car still outside. But here's the thing. I don't believe anything he said about raping and strangling Jennifer. Let me explain. I don't believe for one second that Stephen Hayes began raping and strangling Jennifer while at the same time being aware of the police being outside. These guys, the both of them, were so paranoid and nervous that there's no way that I believe that it happened like that. Hayes was claiming that he noticed there was, what he thought, a cop car outside, so that's what triggered him to rape and strangle Jennifer. To be honest, and this is just my opinion, and maybe this is a little bit out of my lane, but I don't think he would have been able to carry out a sexual assault if he thought that the cops were surrounding the house. I believe what happened was he was in the process of raping Jennifer when Joshua became aware of the police outside and he became aware of Dr. Pettit's escape. We might be getting a little ahead of ourselves. If I remember correctly from his confession, he noticed some members of law enforcement in some bushes outside 
and it was during the time that Hayes was sexually assaulting Jennifer. We know that he did that and he admitted to it. And the only reason he did admit to it because was because it was something he really couldn't deny or blame on Joshua. They didn't have any idea the police were outside until Joshua spotted them and that's when everything stopped. I believe Hayes had finished assaulting Jennifer or was very close to being done and then he strangled her because Joshua described her as already being dead before they started the fire and it was really him who noticed the officers in the bushes outside and noticed that Dr. Pettit had escaped from the basement and that's what got Hayes to start rushing to get out of the house and that included getting the fire started. There was no time that Stephen Hayes continued to carry out any of the criminal activity inside the home when he became aware of police presence outside the house, with the exception of getting gasoline poured around the house and on the victims and igniting it. There's just no way I believe he continued on with the sexual assault after Joshua told him that the cops were outside and Dr. Pettit escaped. But that's what Stephen Hayes tried to claim, claimed that he stopped to go and check outside to look for the police and that Joshua was the one that finished off Jennifer Pettit. It just simply doesn't make any sense. And I don't know who keeps always saying, if it doesn't make sense and it's not true. Who says that? I think that's a Judge Judy quote, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, in the podcast that I listened to Stephen Hayes spew all of this BS, the phone call that he was on was from a correctional facility that was going to cut off. So they started up again and he sort of repeated some of what he had said earlier. And he worded everything almost exactly the same when I listened to the continuation of the phone call. And it just led me to believe that this whole story has just been very rehearsed. He again admitted to there being what he called sexual intercourse with Jennifer Pettit. But in the process of telling his version of events, he's not only blaming Joshua for everything that went down, now he's blaming the victim, Jennifer, for causing him to rape and strangle her because he said that he snapped and he figured that since she snitched them out to the cops, he was going to do all that to hurt her and harm her, despite the fact he claims that he spent the whole evening treating her with dignity and respect. And he had been struggling to find a way to see if she can get out of this situation alive. His exact words were, here I am struggling to save her life. So I did immediately strangle her. And you know, there was, you know, sexual intercourse. It wasn't for the purpose of pleasure. It was more like a rage thing. And it happened really, really quick because once I realized what I was doing, I stopped. I was horrified with myself. And then I remembered the cop outside. She was still alive on the couch and I went out into the garage and I was looking out the window and I don't remember exactly how long I was there, but I didn't see any cop car. I came back in. She was on the floor with a ligature around her neck and I hear Josh running up the cellar stairs yelling, you know, Pettit escaped, Pettit escaped. Hayes claimed that he was like, what do you mean Pettit escaped? You said he was dead. It was at that point Hayes looked out the window and he could see Dr. Pettit coming up the stairs that led to that, those Bilko doors. Dr. Pettit was still bound, so he was literally hopping up the staircase. And Hayes was watching him as he reached the top. So from there, according to Hayes, Joshua was the one who then grabbed the containers of gasoline, 
He said that Joshua went upstairs to pour gasoline up where the girls were. Remember, Joshua said that he closed the bedroom doors to give the girls more time or to buy them time. Joshua also said that it was Hayes who had taken a book of matches and it took him striking three different matches before he was able to get one to work and he tossed it into the pool of gasoline that had formed on the kitchen floor. But in his interview that Hayes did on this podcast, he attributed the exact same story to being what Joshua had done, that he was the one who had the matches and it took him three times in order to ignite the gasoline. I tend to believe Joshua's version of the story and that it was Hayes who started the fire, but as I've been saying, it doesn't really matter. Throughout his interview, Hayes continued to say that he was confused, that nothing that they were doing made any kind of sense. I mean, he's really trying to play dumb here, but it's easy to not buy what he's trying to say happened because he was the more experienced criminal. And by the looks of the two of them, if one of them had to be the brains of the operation, I really don't see Joshua being all that bright. I mean, both of these guys are dumb as hell, but Hayes even admitted to being the one with the longer rap sheet and many more years of experience doing crimes. So Hayes claimed in his interview that Joshua was the one who tossed the match into the pool of gasoline and ignited the fire. He said that Joshua threw the match towards the hallway and into the dining area, and from there they proceeded to flee the house. But if you already were thinking that these two are a couple of dumbasses, get ready because the dumbassery gets even better. Hayes said that when they ran out of the house, they did so without the money that they got from the bank. He said that one of them ran back in to get the money but claimed he did not remember who it was. I don't believe that. There was a point where I believe Joshua said that as they were about to flee the house, Hayes shoved the money at him. And I think that it was Hayes realizing that the jig was up and was wanting to put as much space between himself and his culpability. And that included who was in possession of the money as if that mattered, right? Hayes then said that they got into the car. Joshua was doing the driving. I'm thinking Hayes was still high or had been drinking and was still inebriated. I don't think either one of them would have done any better than the other at that point because when they ran out of the house and got into the car, the police were right outside with their patrol cars waiting for them. They'd actually been there before Hayes and Jennifer Pettit arrived back from the Bank of America. So yeah, if you're putting that together in your head, then yes, the police were outside when everyone was still alive before the fire was started. One of the officers off the record had even reported to somebody in the town later on that they heard a scream coming from inside the house at some point. So Joshua got into the driver's seat. He threw the car, which was the Pettit's vehicle. I believe it was a minivan. He threw the car into reverse and quickly backed into a squad car. Then he threw the car into drive and drove straight into another squad car. To clarify, the police weren't parked there at these moments that these idiots exited the house. They watched as the two of them came out of the house, which was then on fire as well, and the squad cars quickly rolled up in an effort to block Hayes and Joshua from escaping. 
They managed to get their vehicle past those two initial squad cars. They tried to continue down the street, but encountered several more police cars that were parked face to face, bumper to bumper, in an effort to block the road. And what Joshua did then was he drove his vehicle right down the middle, crashed into both squad cars and shoving them apart. So he was able to break apart that blockade. But according to Hayes's version of events that had happened, he had not put on a seatbelt and this impact with the squad cars caused him to fly forward and he ended up slamming his head into the dashboard or something and then he fell to the floorboard of the vehicle. From there, Hayes said that he did not recall getting out of the car. He said that he still had the fake plastic gun on him, so he thought he was going to get shot, but the police didn't shoot. Hayes did point out in this interview that the police got a lot of pushback for not utilizing the SWAT team or the hostage rescue team in this situation. But as far as I know, the law enforcement agencies involved have largely been quiet about the decisions that they made this day that this home invasion took place. But they've gone on record defending their official response. Now, I haven't gotten too much into the criticism of their response yet, but Hayes did bring it up in his interview, and he said that there was either some confusion about whether or not Jennifer Pettit reported to the bank manager and whether or not it was actually a real hostage situation. He said that the bank employees knew Jennifer and Dr. Pettit were in the midst of a divorce. And like I mentioned earlier, I had not been able to find any confirmation that that was going on. There was nothing about them getting divorced that I could find in any article online. But he claimed that when he and Jennifer went into the bank, it just looked like they were together that nobody thought she was in distress or being held hostage. But I have a screenshot of Jennifer at the bank standing near the teller and she looks terrified. So what I think Hayes is doing here is that he's trying to make it seem like Jennifer was comfortable and not deathly afraid, but she was. Stephen Hayes goes on to say that he was upset with what the police did that day and how they responded. None of that information, he said, was ever part of the evidence presented at his trial. He accused the police of hiding what they really did that day, and he believed it was a part of a bigger cover-up. And if they had let it be known what the police had done in their response to this hostage situation, then it would have shown Hayes in a different light, that he was very good and respectful to Jennifer Pettit the entire time. So all this nonsense about this rapist, murderer, and child killer is to try and make him seem like less of a piece of shit, but there is nothing, absolutely nothing that this guy could say to make me think that he had an ounce of good in him. This guy and Joshua Kamersajewski are just simply two evil individuals. Anyway... Hayes continued to say in this interview that he treated Jennifer Pettit really well and that should have come into evidence. He said what gets reported or told about their crime is that they tormented and tortured the Pettit family all night long. What this maniac doesn't seem to understand is what it feels like to be on the receiving end of what the two of them did to this poor family. The fear in and of itself is torment and torture. And... What the hell do they think 
that what they did to Dr. Pettit was, beating him in the head nearly to death with a baseball bat. Isn't that torture? Keeping everyone separated from one another and nobody really knowing how their loved ones are doing or even if they're alive. And that poor child, Michaela, having this sexual predator hovering in her room all night long. It's my understanding that it was during this time that Hayes and Jennifer were gone to the bank. That's when Joshua Karmasajewski took the opportunity to sexually assault her. He never admitted to it, though. But the evidence was there that he did. I mean, he admitted to some parts of it, but he didn't tell the whole truth of what he actually did. Anyway, Hayes here in this interview fully denied that there was torment and torture. And you know what he said the night was like for the Pettit family? This guy had the nerve to say that this night was uncomfortable for them. Uncomfortable. That is all Stephen Hayes thinks that he caused the Pettits that night was a little bit of discomfort. And he justified this idea that they were merely uncomfortable during that night, even though he admitted to the fact that all of this was a kidnapping. He will say that because Jennifer Pettit was so normal and unbothered in the bank that they really couldn't tell if she was saying if what she was saying about her family being held hostage was true or not. And then that is proof that she was totally calm, cool, and collected about what had happened the night before and that morning. Hayes said that if he had been tormenting and torturing that family all night long, Jennifer Pettit would not have presented that way to the bank employees, which is just bullshit. She did look scared, but she was most likely trying to just get through this whole ordeal in order to make sure that she and her family made it through that day alive. Hayes said that the reason why she seemed fine at the bank was because he was, quote, really good to her. Stephen Hayes claimed that he thought everybody in the house was dead because that is what Joshua had told him, that the only person alive was Jennifer. He claimed that Joshua basically ordered him to kill Jennifer. But as soon as he found out that the kids and Dr. Pettit were still alive, that's when he lost it. And this whole thing turned into a suicide mission for him, so he says. Hayes said that if he had known those kids were alive when Joshua started that fire, that he would have run through the gasoline and the flames to try and save them, and most likely would have lost his own life in the process of trying to save those children. Hayes said, and these are his exact words, Had I known them kids were alive, I would have ran through that gas. I would have never allowed that to happen. And he claimed that to this very day, he is just as horrified at what happened at the Pettit house as the Pettits were. For many years following that day, he said that he would have nightmares. Poor guy, right? So then Hayes talked about getting arrested and taken down to have all of their evidence collected and the DNA and fingerprinted and things like that. And he said that he and Joshua were taken away separately and they never had a chance to get their story straight or whatever. He claimed that he believed this whole time that everybody in the house was dead, but that the officers apparently at first were telling Hayes that everyone was alive, and that was an effort to get him to talk, but Hayes clammed up and never provided a confession, written or recorded or otherwise. I was under the impression that he had given a statement, I think I read somewhere, I believe it might have been on Wikipedia, but it's not always reliable, 
Um, but I was never able to find any record of a Hayes confession given before his trial or after their arrest. But Hayes claimed that he never made a statement that he basically lawyered up right away. And he said that he didn't give a statement because he was still very lost and confused about what had happened that night. So when the investigators tried talking to him, he only said a few words and then asked for an attorney and they just tossed him back in his jail cell. And then he talked about the statement that Joshua gave where he pinned most of what happened on Hayes. But you know, Joshua did admit to a heck of a lot more of his involvement than Hayes did. The only thing that he really definitively admitted to, Hayes that is, is raping Jennifer Pettit. And that's because the DNA was going to give him away no matter what he said. But even then, Hayes had the nerve to blame Jennifer for causing him to become so enraged that she basically forced him to have to rape her because she alerted the bank about the hostage situation and the bank in turn called the police. That's all her fault. Hayes then spoke about how the media became involved in their case and it was because of the media that he was made out to be the mastermind behind this whole crime. That the fact is, is that Joshua gave the statement first, placing the majority of the responsibility for their crimes on Hayes, and that it was his silence that ended up making him look like the worser of the two. But you know, again, it's neither here nor there for me as to who did what that night, because they did the whole thing together, side by side, start to finish. They planned this together. They went there together. They spent that whole night terrorizing that family together. And they left together, leaving three people for dead and one near death. But then, when law enforcement investigated the case, they came to see that everything Joshua had said in a statement to them was a lie, or a lot of it was. And there may very well have been a whole bunch of lies and half-truths and deflecting, but the same thing can be said about this ridiculous interview that Stephen Hayes did on this 15 Minutes podcast, if not more so. So Hayes is sitting there on this interview, complaining about Joshua still trying to get out of jail, trying to get his conviction overturned on appeals. And as far as Hayes knew at the time, is that his attorney was attempting to bring up a Brady violation. And most, if not all of us, know what this is by now. But just in case you missed it somehow, it's when either the prosecution or the defense team fails to disclose important evidence that may have made a difference in the case. I'm not an attorney, clearly, but it's my understanding that the appellant can bring up whatever Brady violation they think the prosecutors may have committed. But... I think the judge can not only make that determination as to whether or not the evidence was withheld and if it's exculpatory, but then the judge may make the ruling to overturn the conviction based on that. However, if I'm not mistaken, I think I've seen rulings where the judge or the panel of judges has come to the conclusion that the outcome of the trial would not have been any different had that evidence been introduced at trial and they turn around and deny the appeal. Well, Hayes said that he had spoken to his lawyer and he was told that the issue had to do with the recordings of the Cheshire Police Department talking amongst themselves about how they didn't think that there was a kidnapping going on, which is why they didn't use the hostage negotiator 
and then proceeded to try and cover it all up, allegedly. Hayes said that Joshua was attempting to appeal the DNA evidence, the evidence that he had sexually assaulted the younger Pettit daughter. Hayes said that it is generally believed that Joshua committed that sexual assault while he was at the bank with Jennifer, but said that when he got back from the gas station, that's when he saw that Michaela had different clothing on. If you recall, I believe Joshua said that Michaela wanted to take a shower because of what he had done to her, but I'm more inclined to believe that he ordered her to take a shower because he knew that he had left his DNA behind. So Hayes pointed out that he noticed Michaela had different clothing on when he got back from the gas station. Joshua explained it away by saying she had an accident, like she had gone to the bathroom and soiled her clothing, so he let her clean up in the shower and change her clothes. Next, Hayes talked about what he described as making rounds, checking on each of the members of the Pettit family periodically to make sure everyone was still in place. It was mainly his responsibility to check on Jennifer and Haley, but every time he walked by Michaela's bedroom, she always seemed really calm to him, so he didn't think that Joshua had done anything to her. But he said that he found out later on that Joshua took explicit photos of Michaela and apparently of Haley too, which Joshua admitted to, and I believe he claimed that he had sent the images to Hayes' cell phone, but Hayes denied that that ever happened. He said that he never saw any pictures, that he was never sent any, he was never shown any, and he kind of contradicted himself, and this may have to do with his limited understanding of maybe picture messaging at the time. But he said that he was never sent any pictures and that the evidence came out in court that the pictures were never opened. So he may have been sent the pictures, but perhaps he never had a chance to open the messages because he was a little bit busy taking hostages and robbing banks at the time. Hayes said that he believed that the pictures were taken either when he was at the gas station or at the bank. But it does sound like Joshua waited for Hayes to be gone in order to do all these other crimes that he had in mind involving Michaela. And I think I believe that. I don't think Joshua wanted Hayes to know that he was planning on raping a child while they were on this crime spree. Hayes claimed that the timestamp in the metadata of the photos proved that he was not at the house at the time that they were taken. He didn't say metadata, but... Just know that I'm paraphrasing almost everything Hayes said in this interview, unless I'm directly quoting him. And the links to the interview will be provided in the show notes in case one of you wants to listen to all of this BS come straight from the asshole himself. So Hayes claimed that Joshua's reasons for taking those explicit pictures of Haley and Michaela were a part of Joshua's convoluted plan to try and blackmail Dr. Pettit. But I don't want to get too into it, but the pictures did not have the girls' faces in them. So technically they were kind of anonymous unless you knew who the pictures were of. They could have really been anybody. And Hayes is telling him, you can't blackmail their dad with pictures like that. You can't even identify who they are in the photos. So from there, Hayes talked about how much he hated Josh, how this guy ruined his life, that he never should have gone along with Joshua's plan to commit this home invasion. So he again placed all this blame on Joshua, but then said that he was so messed up and he was at the end of his rope and everything he did was out of sheer desperation. 
He had fallen off. He had relapsed. Everything that he had been trying to do to straighten out his life was all ruined. And all of it, he says, is Joshua's fault. Then towards the last few minutes of his interview, Hayes said that since he'd been incarcerated, he's identified as a transgender woman and that there was something really screwed up about him at the time that the crimes happened. So here, Stephen Hayes is attributing his mental health issues or, quote, being screwed up, unquote, as a part of the reasons why everything happened the way that it did. I really don't have much to say about that. To me, it's just another excuse, another way to deflect from what he did. I honestly don't give a shit about his transitioning because he still did what he did. The host of the podcast that Hayes was on asked if he could ask Joshua any questions, what would he ask him? Hayes replied that he would ask him why he lied, but he said, I already know the answers to that. Joshua lied to him about the Pettits being dead because, according to Hayes, he claimed it was the only way Joshua would be able to get him to continue on with their plan to burn down the house. Hayes also replied that if he had the chance to ask Joshua anything, he would ask him why he did everything he did to this family, but he said he knows the answer to that too, and that's because Joshua is a psychopath. And that's real rich coming from one psychopath to another if that's what they are, in fact, sociopaths or psychopaths, one or the other, or both, or a combination of each. And it gets better again. Hayes said that Joshua had a tough upbringing, just like he did, but that's no excuse, Hayes says, which again is also rich, coming from a guy who I just spent nearly this entire episode talking about all of his excuses. Hayes accused Joshua of continuing on with his appeals in the court system and taking them as far as he could take them and continuing to re-victimize this family over and over again, years and years after the fact. But Hayes, Stephen Hayes here, he's an upstanding guy and does not want to continue to torment and torture this family or to continue to make them feel quote unquote uncomfortable being this noble guy that he is, right? So Hayes decided to drop all of his appeals. He talked a little bit about his attempt to plead not guilty by reason of temporary insanity, but because they were unaware that Hayes suffered from gender dysphoria at the time, the experts wouldn't find that he suffered from temporary insanity at the time that he committed the crimes. But he said that even though he was still able to trace his gender dysphoria back to when he was a teenager, he's chosen to not continue that fight on appeal because he's still guilty. Even though he didn't kill the children, even though he didn't kill Jennifer Pettit, he claimed the intent to murder was never there, but he was still there. He was present when Joshua did all these murders and sexual assaults and arsons. So what, Stephen Hayes was just a guilty bystander? Is that what he's trying to claim here? Yeah, that's just ridiculous. But anyway, this phone call was finally coming to an end and Hayes had to close out the conversation by saying that if he could say one thing to Joshua about his ongoing appeals, what would he tell him? And Hayes said that he would tell him to just stop everything that he's doing, stop the lying, stop dragging this family through this, just shut up and serve out your sentence quietly. 
and do something to try and help people instead of continuing to harm them. That's Steve's public service announcement to Joshua Karmasajewski. What a piece of shit. This whole interview annoyed me because there was so many lies and so much BS to, to sort through. But anyway, moving on from that. The reaction to what Joshua Karmasajewski and Stephen Hayes did to the Pettits was a lot of anger in the community. They were furious. The town of Cheshire and the surrounding communities wanted these guys sent straight to the execution chamber. Never mind the trial, but in the state of Connecticut at the time, abolishing the death penalty or legislation to abolish it was in the works. And long story short about that, banning the death penalty as a potential sentence for capital murder was actually postponed for a number of years because of this case. I don't want to get ahead of myself because I'm going to talk about it more when we get to it. But the murders of Jennifer Haley and Michaela Pettit really changed the town of Cheshire forever. It was no longer this safe, quiet bedroom community that it once was. People were suddenly installing alarm systems in their homes for the first time or upgrading their existing systems. Life had been a certain way before this event, and it was completely different afterwards. Five days after the murders, the Pettit girls and their mother were laid to rest. Now, I don't usually use information directly from Wikipedia, especially in cases like this, because there are so many better sources out there. And when you have a very complicated case like this one with so many layers, so many crimes, multiple perpetrators, multiple murder victims, and all the years it takes for cases like this to grind through the court system, when you get to Wikipedia, you'll find dozens of references and citations, and I just can't with Wikipedia and all the fact-checking that you have to do. And in this case, there were 141 citations to sort through, and you know probably half of them don't even work anymore. But there were a couple of details that were different from what I found in the court documents and the two recorded statements of Joshua Karmasajewski and Stephen Hayes. But in the Wikipedia page on this case, it says that Hayes provided a confession, which is what confused me. When I looked at the citation number it listed, it was actually Joshua's confession that that information had come from. So whoever edited this section in Wikipedia put the wrong killer's name. The rest of that section is pretty much what we've already gone over. The investigation into the Cheshire murders led to the discovery of some surveillance video from the gas station where Stephen Hayes had purchased $10 worth of gas in two gas cans that they got from the victim's house. I do not believe that they were official gas cans that you're supposed to have when you go and buy gas and you don't put it directly in your car. You have to buy tanks specifically made to carry gasoline. They may have had gasoline containers, like official red ones, but Joshua said in his confession that they emptied bottles of windshield wiper fluid to use as containers to buy gas. And when Hayes got back with the gas, the next thing he did was take Jennifer to the bank. And it would be this sequence of events that would later be used against the two men as evidence of premeditation when it came to the murders. The two of them claimed that murder was never the intended outcome, but the fact that gas was purchased with the intention of burning the house to the ground while everyone was tied up inside, even the most dim-witted criminal knows how quickly and deadly an arson fire fueled by gasoline can be. 
When Jennifer went to the bank to withdraw the $15,000, she informed the bank employees that her family was being held hostage by two men, that they were at her home at the time, and she said that they would kill them if she doesn't comply and bring them this money that they're demanding. That's when the bank manager called 911 and was actually still on the phone with the dispatcher in real time as Jennifer collected her withdrawal money and exited the bank. The manager did tell the dispatcher that Jennifer told her that the intruders in their home were being nice and the only thing that they wanted was the money. This is likely what got everyone in terms of law enforcement thinking that this wasn't as serious of a situation as it actually was. And the bank manager did say that Jennifer did look terrified. In response to this 911 call, the Cheshire Police Department made an assessment of what they were being told and what was described by the bank manager. So they went over and set up a perimeter in the neighborhood that the Pettits lived in, but did so without revealing that they were present or nearby, except for the fact that they were spotted by at least one, possibly both killers. And I believe Dr. Pettit saw them too when he was finally able to hop his way out the Bilko doors. What I do know is that the police were there when Stephen Hayes and Jennifer Pettit returned from the bank. They watched them walk casually into the house, I guess as casually as it could be. You know Jennifer is not trying to draw attention to herself, so she could have been looking relatively normal while all of this was going on. And the police were watching this from the bushes and trees, and they remained out there till the bitter end. It was during this time, while the police were hiding in their perimeter spots, that these two pieces of shit escalated their crime spree. So, while the police were outside, Joshua Karmasajewski raped Michaela. Her autopsy revealed that he lied about what he did to her. His DNA was found inside her, not how he described in his confession, and he also took pictures of himself assaulting her. And a later analysis of her clothing revealed that there was bleach on some of her items, indicating that there was an attempt to get rid of DNA evidence. By the way, it was later revealed at trial that it was sodomy. And I'm sorry, I didn't know that information when I did the first episode. The Wikipedia page said that Hayes said it was Joshua who provoked him into raping and strangling Jennifer Pettit. But he said in his statement in that interview that Jennifer was the one who provoked him when he found out she had the bank alert the police as to what was going on in their home. During this time, Dr. Pettit was able to hear his wife being assaulted by Stephen Hayes. He was able to hear one of them tell her not to worry that it's all going to be over in a couple of minutes. At that point, Dr. Pettit had a choice to make. He could either run up the stairs that led to the main part of the house where all of this was going on, or he could make his way up the stairs and out the bilical doors that led to the outside. He was really in no shape at all to take on both of these guys, considering he had taken four or five hits to the head with a baseball bat. If he would have gone up the stairs that led to the main part of the house, Dr. Pettit would have probably died too. And he was under the impression that these men had a gun and that they were going to shoot them all, which is why he decided that his best chance at saving his family would be to try to get help from a neighbor. Dr. Pettit had no idea that the police had been outside the house 
ever since Jennifer and Hayes had gotten back from the bank. I believe when he hopped up those stairs, police were looking on, and he started to make his way towards his neighbor's front lawn. It was at that moment that Joshua realized Dr. Pettit had escaped, and that's when Hayes, who was in the middle of raping Jennifer, stopped and killed her. Once he realized Dr. Pettit had escaped, he felt like his only choice was to do so, and he strangled her. Her cause of death was asphyxiation. She was dead before the house was set on fire. Hayes killed her. They ignited the gasoline. They fled the house and ran right into at least four squad cars as they tried in vain to escape. The Wikipedia page on this case definitively points out which perpetrator did what. But because Stephen Hayes and Joshua Kamarzajewski pointed fingers at each other, we really can't be completely sure who was responsible for what, because consider the sources. But it said that Hayes was in the middle of raping Jennifer when Joshua came into the room to tell him that Dr. Pettit had escaped, and that's when Hayes strangled Jennifer. Remember in his confession, he said that he started to strangle her, but then he stopped to go look outside to see if he saw any police squad cars out there, and that by the time he came back, it was Joshua who had finished strangling Jennifer with a ligature. But I believe he was the one who killed Jennifer start to finish, and if I'm not mistaken, this conclusion was reached based on DNA evidence. The dousing of Jennifer's body is said to have been done by both men, as well as both of the girls' bedrooms and the girls themselves were also doused with gasoline. Neither of these men in any of their statements ever said that anybody was directly doused with gasoline. And by the way, it was Hayes who reeked of gas after they were taken into custody. So the girls had gasoline poured on them, they were tied to their beds, and the house was set on fire. And these guys want to say that they treated everybody in that house with respect and dignity. It's real dignifying to have someone take pictures of your private parts. Both girls were photographed by Joshua. It's real dignifying to sodomize an 11-year-old child and then add to the dignity by pouring gasoline all over them while they're tied to their beds and setting their house on fire only to leave those two girls there to die of smoke inhalation. They tried to get away. The girls tried to escape their bedrooms. Haley made it, but they were both overcome by smoke before they could get out of the hallway. The investigation later revealed that both Haley and Michaela's beds and all the clothing that they had on had been doused with gas. Haley, the 17-year-old, managed to get out of her restraints. She made it to the top of the staircase, which is where she fell to the ground and died. On her feet, Haley had third and fourth degree burns. Her sister, Michaela, was not able to make it out of her bed. She was found kind of hanging off of it partially, still bound to it. She also suffered some burns on her body as well. But the medical examiner was not able to determine for sure if the girls were still alive when they were burned or not. But it was said in court that it was possible that both of them were alive and for it to take as much as a minute of breathing in the smoke for them to actually die. Dr. Pettit, as you know, was able to escape the house. He crawled towards his neighbor's front lawn. At first, because of all the injuries that he had about his head, his neighbor didn't even recognize him. It was in short order that Hayes and Joshua tried to flee the Pettit's house in their vehicle and ultimately only made it about a block after smashing through numerous squad cars. 
In total, the whole ordeal inside the Pettit home went on for seven hours. Both men pointed at each other as being the driving force behind the crimes. And Joshua even took things a step further and placed the blame for the deaths of Jennifer, Haley, and Michaela on Dr. Pettit himself. In a journal that he kept in his jail cell that was later presented in court, Joshua referred to Dr. Pettit as a coward who could have saved his family if he really wanted to. Before I end this episode, I wanted to give you just a little bit more background information about the two men who carried out the Cheshire murders. Stephen Hayes is currently identifying as female and goes by Linda Hayes, but I said in the beginning of the series that I would refer to Hayes by his last name and his pronouns at the time that the crimes took place. It's just easier for me that way because I tend to confuse myself. He was born in May of 1963, so today he's 60 years old. The very first time he was convicted as an adult was at the age of 16 in 1980. After serving two years in prison, he was paroled but ended up going back to prison seven weeks later on a parole violation. Then between 1982 and the year the Cheshire murders took place in 2007, so 25 years, Hayes was arrested close to 30 times and spent the majority of that quarter century in prison. The last time Hayes was arrested prior to the Cheshire murders was in 2004, and that was for smashing a car window and stealing a purse. He was paroled two years later in 2006 and went to stay at a halfway house, which is where he became acquainted with Joshua. Hayes had gone on trial for 17 different charges related to the Cheshire murders in 2010. He was subsequently convicted on 16 out of the 17 charges that he faced for his crimes and involvement in the murders, and a month later the jury recommended that Hayes be sentenced to death by lethal injection, which he was sentenced to death. From there, Hayes was sent to Connecticut's death row, which is located at the Northern Correctional Institution in Summers, Connecticut. However, his death sentence was vacated and commuted to life in prison without the possibility of parole in 2015 when the state Supreme Court abolished the death penalty in Connecticut. As of August of 2016, Hayes has been housed at a prison in Pennsylvania, which is a part of an interstate correctional facility agreement that they have in place when it comes to the safety and security of inmates. In October of 2019, Hayes revealed that he was transgender and undergoing hormone therapy. But as far as I can see, to me, he still presents as male. The last mugshot I saw of him, he was old and had a long scraggly beard and he's housed in a men's prison. So there's that. Joshua Komarczewski was born in August of 1980. So today he's 43 years old. He was born to a teenage mom who put him up for adoption. He was adopted by Benedict Karmasajewski, who was the son of Theodore Karmasajewski and dancer Ernestine Stoddell. So yeah, this guy Joshua is the adopted grandson of a fairly well-known Russian and later British theater designer and director. Theodore Karmasajewski died more than 25 years before Joshua was adopted. But his wife, that would be Joshua's adoptive grandmother, lived until 2008, so at most a year after the Cheshire murders. 
So I don't know if she had a relationship with him, if she knew of him. I don't know any of that. I didn't look into it that deeply. Prior to the Cheshire murders, sometime in the early 1990s when Joshua was becoming a teenager, his sister accused him of sexually assaulting her, for which Joshua was actually convicted. At his sentencing for those crimes, which I don't know all the details about just yet, I still have more information to go through, so if I do have more, I'll let you know. Joshua's father spoke at his sentencing hearing and admitted to the court that what Joshua was accused and convicted of was probably true. Joshua would go on to commit his first burglary in 1994 when he was only 14. Eight years later, Joshua was arrested and charged with being responsible for 18 more home invasion burglaries. I'll tell you a little bit more about that when I go over some of the key points in the documentary that I watched on this case. In December of 2002, Joshua was convicted on 12 of the 18 home invasions and was subsequently sentenced to nine years in prison, followed by six years of parole. When sentencing him, the judge presiding over his case called Joshua a calculated cold-blooded predator. He was paroled less than five years later in April of 2007, just a couple of months before the Cheshire murders. The investigation into Joshua's criminal background revealed that per Connecticut law, prosecutors in his case were supposed to provide the parole board with the transcript of Joshua's sentencing hearing you know, the one where the judge put it on the record that he was a calculating, cold-blooded predator? Well, apparently the parole board never received that transcript and ended up granting Joshua his parole without knowing all of the finer details of his case. This would be the one where he sexually assaulted his sister. After being paroled, Joshua went to stay at that same halfway house that Hayes was sent to, which is where they met. So yeah, Hayes clearly had a longer criminal history by virtue of being the older of the two, but Joshua was no naive, inexperienced kid. Neither one of these guys are bright. When you look at the big picture, it really doesn't matter who was a so-called mastermind in my eyes. I've said it from the beginning. They started this together, they ended it together, and they both went down for it together. Joshua went on trial almost a year after Hayes did in September of 2011. He was convicted after a three-week trial on all 17 counts that he was charged with. The jury recommended death for him as well, just as they did for his co-conspirator, to which he was subsequently sentenced, death by lethal injection. But his was also commuted to life in prison with a sentence vacated by the Connecticut Supreme Court, abolishing the death penalty. Joshua was also sent to a correctional facility in Pennsylvania with that interstate corrections agreement when it comes to relocating prisoners between the two states for safety concerns. Shortly after he was transferred to a Pennsylvania state prison, Joshua attempted to take his own life by hanging, but he apparently didn't get that right either and survived. Joshua Karmasajewski has been appealing his case in the years subsequent to his conviction, with the last denial of his appeal having been ruled on by the Connecticut Supreme Court in April of 2021. And following that, the United States Supreme Court refused to hear his appeal of the Connecticut State Supreme Court's unanimous decision. By the way, both of these fools tried to avoid trial and a possible death sentence by offering to plead guilty for life in prison sentences, 
but the prosecutor wanted to see both of these defendants on death row so badly that those plea deals were rejected. Both men were taken to trial. Both were sentenced to death, just like the prosecutor and pretty much the entire state of Connecticut wanted. But it feels like it was a waste of time and resources because the legislation was already in the works for the death penalty to be abolished and the governor at the time who was going to sign it decided to veto it instead and cited the Cheshire murders as a reason for doing so. In 2012, the state representatives voted to repeal capital punishment again, but to leave the death sentences that were already given out in place. However, leaving past death sentence convictions in place while declaring future death sentences unconstitutional would be inconsistent, so all death sentences were abolished. And this was a move that Dr. Pettit condemned in August of 2015 when he accused the court of overstepping and failing to consider the emotional impact of these crimes on the victims and their surviving family members. Okay, dreamers, I still have more that I want to go over from the documentary on this case. And I want to get a little bit deeper into the aftermath and the years following the Cheshire murders. So this will push us into four parts, but I'm satisfied that you've got the complete story now. I guess I could say part four would be completely voluntary if you want to get into some of the finer details of what happened after the fact. So I want to thank you all so much for patiently waiting for this third part. The past couple of months really kicked my ass and I was down for a minute, but I was never out. I will be back soon with the fourth part of the series and it will be the last one, I promise, even if it takes me two hours to finish it. As well as the newest episodes of Only Us in the Building, those have been released a couple, I think we're on the fourth episode now, but it's, um, yeah, we have a little bit of a technical hiccup with that. It's not my fault. <laughs> anyway, also your December Patreon bonus is on deck as well. I'm really ready for the holidays this year. It's been a long time since I've actually been excited about Christmas. I hope all of you are having a decent December so far. It's not been that cold here just yet in the desert, but it's coming soon and I'm here for it. I love the fall and winter. Okay, that's all I got for today. I will be back soon with more stuff to fill your ear holes. And as always, until next time, sweet dreams. <laughs>